Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas in stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium, and in any genre. In so doing, we hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew frames that conversation through nine simple yet powerful questions that sit at the foundations of all thoughtful human discourse. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to Bibliophiles. After an extended hiatus, the first of its kind, I am your host, Ian Andrews, joined by the members of my family, Adam. Hey. Missy. Hi. Emily. Hello. And Megan. Hey. How you guys doing? How was your break? Hmm? Great. What break? Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> Busy with other things. The thing about Bibliophiles is that we've been recording it for six years. It's kind of a long time, as mm-hmm. it turns out. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you guys, but I felt the need for a little rejuvenation of the ideas that we're talking about, maybe a little refocusing. And I think it's been a pretty productive sabbatical. Let's call it a sabbatical. That's mm-hmm. a good name for it. Mm-hmm. So this new direction, I want to tell you listeners a little bit about it. We're so excited to share this with you. We have decided to start releasing bibliophiles in seasons so that we can discuss particular ideas um, fully. We can walk all the way around the facets of the diamond and get a good look at them. And so we're going to begin with a season on the universal ideas, which will come, I'm sure, as a complete shock to all of you. (laughs) Big surprise. Now, a show that contains any one of us Andrews types that doesn't bring up a universal idea is a weird show indeed. So we're going to start with a series on the universal questions. So each episode is going to go like this. We're going to define a question. We're going to talk about it. And then we are going to um, issue a couple of examples, beginning with an example of a thinker from our own era, a, a writer of fiction or someone who films TV shows or an artist of some stripe um, or a columnist, maybe, or a politician even. I mean, the idea is to broaden the scope so that we can think about these ideas in culture before articulating an answer to that question from the perspective of a classic. And um, I'm pretty I'm pretty excited to uncover some of the tensions. I think the ideas as we encounter them now are somewhat different from the ones that we'll see in the in the classic iterations. So without any further ado, I think we should dive into our first episode. We're going to start with maybe the biggest question, the very largest question of all, which is, is there in fact a God? Now, a couple of you have been tapped to uh, be in the hot seat, as it were, issuing us with some examples. Um, if that is the case, please raise your hand. And you can go ahead and do that because we actually are recording the video. Yes, check it out. <laughs> there are two of you responsible for doing this. So <laughs> for those just listening, it's a, it will be a surprise. It's, it's, <laughs> it's Missy and Emily. Missy and Emily have been tapped as our, as our first lead commenters. And I think I would like to start by asking Missy to give us the example that she found in current culture. In current culture. Yeah, start with your start with your current culture. However, before we before we dive into the details of your description, I'd love to hear your your definition as it were of the question. And everybody feel free to break in and find define and sharpen as well because I want to know exactly what this question uh uh entails. Okay, so the question is is there a god? And it's hard to imagine that we need to define that question. It seems pretty straightforward. Ah, but we do. So explain to me, what do you mean? What I always think about when I think about that question is, first of all, it's either a religious and theological question, or it's a little bit more philosophical. Does the force behind the universe have a personality? Is the creative force or the motive force moving things, the prime mover in Aristotle's term, does that person have a name and a personality? Well, that and seems to be a secondary question. That, that seems to be who is he, right? Who well, is he? What's he like? Maybe, but I think that the point is well taken, which is that there's something that we mean when we ask these things. You and I might, might have a, a nuanced reading of the question, and when we say, is there a God? What we mean is, does the Christian God exist? Because here we are being Christians, right? But there are broader ways to ask that question and, and ways from other cultural standpoints and religious traditions and that sort of thing. So one of, the, one of the things I wanted to point out is, 
it might be important for us to think about what does an average human being mean by that across mm-hmm. the across the whole world? What do they mean by the question? Is that's kind of what I was driving at. I okay. couldn't help but remember my own education. I came from a more evangelical Baptist background, and importantly, I was a child of the '90s, and there was a heavy emphasis on apologetics in my education. And the underlying assumption was that we were going to be dumped out into a world that needed to be convinced of a supernatural dimension to life. That, And if you, like, I was just thinking, if you go back and watch movies or TV shows from the nineties or the early two thousands, like it really was a very materialistic culture and there wasn't much concern about any kind of divine or supernatural element to life. And I just wonder if that is as true today as it was then. Because th- is there a God? There's an element in which you're having a a rational proof conversation. Or, like you were saying, you're kind of more having a conversation about is there a- an individual deity or is there... Like now there's more of a mystical element that's popular in culture. Yeah. Well, and one of the other things I was thinking is that it has, at least in America, right, which is which is where we all are, it has a necessarily moral component. When you say, is there a God, you're asking, is there a standard mm. of mm-hmm. what is right and what is wrong? Because we're, we're Western and that's how we think about God's interaction with his people is, is via law, Right. So um, to, to maybe ask a, a further sharpening question, what are the, what are the implications of, of this particular question, broad though it might be? Does this affect other areas of thought? Why is it important that we ask it? Well, if the, if the statement you just made is true, that's a major implication, mm-hmm. right? The, the implication for morality and ethics. If uh, there is no God, but we have instead the impersonal force of Jack London and Ernest Hemingway, then the only morality, basis for morality and ethics is power. Have, have to do with power and authority and influence. Yeah. Interesting. I was thinking about uh, the relevance of this question to our listeners, because broadly speaking, we have probably the majority of our listeners would say, yes, there is a God of one stripe or another. So what would you guys say? Why, why should our listeners keep listening to this episode? Cause we're really funny and articulate. <laughs> this has been bibliophiles (laughs) thanks for joining us we'll see you next season okay okay. i'll I'll start i was thinking about there was this great article in mockingbirds magazine um it was the faith and doubt issue and it was actually just ethan richardson's the 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 editor's opening salvo and i remember it has stuck with me for i think this issue is pretty old over a year old it's really stuck with me he said the opposite of faith is not doubt the opposite of faith is certainty yep and so even for Christians, the question of whether or not there is a God, while it may not seem absolutely relevant to our lives, every day is a constant struggle of behaving as though there were a God or not. Hmm. I you might... don't mean that it's not relevant to our lives. You mean that we've already answered the question. So why would we keep asking that question? Yes, that's a better way of putting it. Mm. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I would say more it, that it, the question is not whether we behave as though there's a God, but there really is the question of whether we believe on a daily basis. It's one thing to subscribe a creed and assert and agree with a proposition of God's existence, but to uh, it means something else, something more visceral, to walk in the world as though there were a God, as though the force had a personality. And I think that's relevant to to cultures at all times. Primarily because you can't see them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, one it's of the true. fundamental things behind even asking this question is that we can't see him. He's not tangible. So the only way we can really approach the question of God is through faith. Mm. Yeah, and I like the way that that comment and the one before it also ties us down into into human activity ties us down to the to the stuff of actual daily life. It's less philosophical, put that way, which puts me in mind of sort of the last preamble question I want to ask you guys: um, Is this actually a universal question? There are some people I the, and I've met and had conversations with some of them who would say, "Oh, I never think about that. Not important. Doesn't affect my life at all whether God exists or not." And I'm not interested. 
in the question of whether God exists or not. Is that a valid um, perspective? Or can we say that, that the idea of God is big enough that even a negative answer to the question is still represents obsession with the question? Oh, I think it, it, that's a duck. I think that's nothing but a duck. Everybody has to answer this question in one way or another. What is a duck? A, a duck, dodge. you know, a dodge. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's just ducking. <laughs> yeah. No, I is. think you might be right. It's a duck. It's a cow <laughs> and it's a duck. <laughs> no. So it's a cow. It's an otter. It's That's an daunting. otter. That's all that is. It's an otter. <laughs> <laughs> so mean to me (laughs) hey listen we're not gonna be mean to you so you so you're actually on the hot seat first mom and here's what i here's what we'd like to hear from you i want to know about your modern example where's where did you find evidence of an answer to this question in the culture as we see it right this minute well i found it in a couple of places i don't know if you're gonna let me share both of them but i'll start with the short one um a short poem by the poet mary oliver who's a contemporary poet she just died a, a couple of years ago she wrote a piece called i wake close to morning And I'm going to just read it for you here. Why do people keep asking to see God's identity papers when the darkness opening into morning is more than enough? Certainly any God might turn away in disgust. Think of Sheba approaching the kingdom of Solomon. Do you think she had to ask, is this the place? This is Mary Oliver's I Wake Close to Morning. Wow. And I just think that she's managed to sum up in like nine lines, um, the the pithy part of this conversation that we're having, she's basically making um, an argument from design in nine right. lines, right? She's saying, look, look at the world around you. Why is everybody asking for proof of God's existence? All you have to do is watch the dawn come out of the darkness. She compares it to uh, the Queen of Sheba coming into Solomon's splendorous kingdom. And she's, she asks a rhetorical question. Do you really think she had to ask, is this the place? And what does she mean by that? Well, you know, all that she saw when she walked into that kingdom, everything that she heard that brought her there was substantiated by what she saw. And of course, its existence, it basically suggested in living color, uh, that there was someone who created the kingdom, someone who's sustaining the kingdom. Hmm. Um, you see what I mean? All of mm-hmm. the power and the might and uh, the honor and the prestige that was associated with Solomon was present in the things that she saw all around her. And she didn't have to ask, is this the place? Uh, she didn't have to ask, is is Solomon splendorous? Uh, everything that her eyes showed her. It was her, apparent. Yeah, it was apparent. And that's basically what Oliver is saying. It's apparent. Open your eyes. Look around. Just at the natural world and its wonders. Do you really have to ask, is there a God? That is a really interesting treatment of the question because it's it's evidentiary on, on one hand and, and not on the other. On the one hand, she's pointing to the evidence of nature, the splendor, the Solomonic splendor of mm-hmm. nature, right? And saying, here's all the evidence you need. But on the other hand, she flatly refuses to make a case. She just says, here's the interpretation of that splendor. If you can't see it, what's the matter with you? That's that's like the opposite of an argument. It's almost like she's saying, um, I doubt, I doubt you if you ask that question. Exactly. In a way, you're being disingenuous. Because any fool can see, all you have to do is open like your Like the eye. person that says, this question doesn't concern me, and I don't want to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Of course, that is a position on the question. And it's even a position on the debate about the question. Well, it's a, like right? I said, it's an argument from design. She's basically saying um, that there's mind behind a machine, right? Right. If you see a machine laying there in the sand, you don't say, oh, I wonder how that machine created itself. You know that some mind created the machine. There's design in it. There's purpose in it. So when you look at the world that's so full of design, everywhere you look, there's design. How can you not know that there's mind behind the matter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The second thing that, that dad said, though, is also true, which is that she's, she's assuming something about the debate itself. She's implying blindness. In other words, the rhetorical question says, your eyes must be closed. If you actually think there's no God, your eyes must be closed, which is a, which is a sharp criticism of her, of our era, right? That, that's true. But I think she's also performing a service to her readers in giving them eyes, like 
pay attention, wake up, open your eyes, look, look at the darkness opening into morning, right? Which really does focus your attention on a wonder that's repeated every day. Every morning there's a wonder. We just sleep through it. Mm-hmm. We sleep through it. Oh, well we said. Sleep it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that she calls them God's identity papers. <laughs> Don't you love that? Yeah. I mean, conjures up a little little fear of fascism, perhaps. <laughs> well, yeah. Be, what are identity papers associated? I mean, literally, it's just who is he? But the identity papers idea is um, it's aggressive in a way, you know? Well, it makes me think of passports and travel and God coming from afar to be here. It actually, if you press on that, is deeply thematic. You get to the incarnation there pretty quickly, yeah. don't you? I like that. Yeah. So anyway, that would be my first, my, my salvo, right? To this Your whole opening salvo? Issue, my yeah. opening salvo to this idea. Um, the second one follows Fast and Furious upon it, and it's actually a, a work of uh, children's literature, um, juvenile fiction, by a man named Daniel Nyeri, published um, just in the past year. It's a book called Everything Sad is Untrue. <laughs> Megan just likes to call it Everything is Sad. <laughs> Everything is sad. Well, it's so I sad. Finished reading I'm, trying, it <laughs> I'm trying so hard to finish it. Okay, I don't want the listeners to get the wrong idea. I think it's beautiful. I think it's one of the greatest works that has been written in its in its year at least. It's, and it's the a book New York of the Times year. bestseller for such a good reason. It's just so heartrendingly sad. And it's because of real, honest-to-goodness things that happens to this kid as a refugee, and I, I can't bear it. My heart breaks. So, so far, I'm making it about 10 pages at a time, and I'm sobbing my eyes out in my living room, and I threw the book across the room last time because it was too sad. It was so, too sad. Right now, I don't know that any of it is untrue. It's all, it's all just sad. <laughs> <laughs> Everything sad is untrue. No, it isn't. <laughs> well, you know, but if you, if you connect that sadness with darkness... And go back to the the first part of our conversation, the defining oh, yeah. the terms of our conversation. This is a reason why people would ask the question, is there a right. God? No, no, no. I was going to go there. That it's an expression of a need for God. Yeah. Well, and I think it's beautiful because it's another kind of argument from design in a roundabout way. So Daniel Nyeri is addressing this question of God with a biographical memoir. He himself was uh, uh, an Iranian refugee. He grew up in Oklahoma. And he explains in the story um, as though he were like a 10-year-old, a, a very young boy talking to his, um, his class, right, in the public school system. He's telling his class about his experiences coming to America as a refugee. And he explains the circumstances that precipitated his mother's decision, decision to flee Iran with him and with his sister, leaving their Muslim father, their entire family, a prosperous life and respect and influence in Iran to embrace public shame and poverty and abuse and alienation in the United States. Megan's going, I know. Yeah, sad, 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 really sad. Get it? Now, Sounds for Daniel... Terrible. For Daniel, the loss transcends even these physical and circumstantial elements. He kind of loses his identity in the process. And he's, you can hear him struggling in his little 10-year-old voice to piece the random memories that he has together into some sort of a, a cohesive narrative, looking for some sort of design and hoping to find in this patched up story some sort of a clue to his own identity. And he says this, listen, knowing about yourself about your family, knowing the name of a grandpa and saying it out loud so he can hear it, it's probably the thing kids in Oklahoma treasure most. They hide it, of course, the way you should hide your most valuable thing. But I bet they walk around with it, with a treasure chest full of clear memories, and the chest has their family name engraved on it. And the chest is their chest. And the memories are in their heart. And their hearts are full, full of something that isn't dripping away into nothing. A patchwork memory is the shame of a refugee. Hmm. So he, he puts a fine point on the importance of asking these questions and really the other questions that follow them, right? So his story places the question of God and the search for human identity on the same golden narrative thread. And it begins, this story, with his sister, who, while visiting a family in England, is sent to a school for gifted children and she experiences their racial discrimination and 
absolute torture from her, her peers. The trauma builds to this sort of climactic moment in which one of her abusers, this little boy in her class, maims her hand. And he says this, Nayeri says, believe me, I know how it sounds. But imagine you're six and you came home every day crying, begging not to go to school. And the grown-ups just pat you on the head and they say, there, there, it'll get better. But it doesn't get better, only worse. Until today, you got your finger chopped off in a door and everyone realized they should have let you stay home. If that was you, would you walk out two hours later into the living room where the adults are sitting and having tea and biscuits and kicking themselves? And would you tell them everything was fine? Or would you milk it a little? The answer is you'd milk it so hard it would turn into butter. There is no reason to come out and say you're fine. But that's what she did. She said she was lying on Ellie's bed. By the door was a rolled-up Persian rug that we had brought with us for Ellie. And when my sister woke up, she saw a man sitting on the rug. And she didn't know him, but she wasn't scared. When she described him, kind eyes, brown hair, a glow like a TV in a dark room, white robes, Ellie gasped and said, Oh my God, you saw Jesus! And my sister said, Yeah, even though she had no idea who Jesus was or what he looked like, because we didn't have pictures of him in Iran. He only said four words, it will be okay, which is funny because that's what all the grown-ups said, and it wasn't. Ellie was the happiest I have ever seen her, maybe because it meant that there would be another exile. Your daughter's a Christian, she said to my mom, who was furious. Yeah, said my sister, I'm a Christian because she saw it made my mom twitch. <laughs> that was the moment that everything started to blow up. It wasn't the bang. Maybe it wasn't even the lit fuse, but it was definitely the struck match, the flash and the spark that sent us flying across the world. And it was mostly absurd. Miracles are absurd by definition. If they weren't, they'd just be odd things that happened, improbable things. But while miracles are impossible... They aren't coincidences. They're knives that cut into our reality, and they're messy and weird. So all of a sudden, my mom had a six-year-old saying she was a Christian, which, if you didn't know, was a crime in Iran. Not a regular one, either. A capital crime. The kind where, if you're found guilty, they kill you. So as if this position that they found themselves in as a family wasn't precarious enough... The family heritage that he enjoyed um, put them in a really public position. He explains that both his mother and his father were Syeds, which meant that they could trace their lineage all the way back to Muhammad, which made him and his sister really, really special, according to the culture. Doubly special. He says, my mom was a Syed from the bloodline of the prophet. And in Iran, if you convert from Islam to Christianity or Judaism, it's a capital crime. That means if they find you guilty in religious court, they kill you. But if you convert to something else, like Buddhism or something, well, then it's not so bad. Probably because Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are sister religions, and you always have the worst fights with your sister. <laughs> and probably nothing happens if you're just a six-year-old, except if you say, I'm a Christian now in your school, chances are that the committee will hear about it and raid your house. Because if you're a Christian now, well, then so are your parents, probably. And the committee does stuff way worse than killing you. Now, when my sister walked out of her room and said she'd met Jesus, my mom knew all that. And here's the part that gets hard to believe. Seema, my mom, read about him and became a Christian, too. Not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket. She fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions, you have rules and codes and obligations to follow to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was to believe that he was the one who died for you. And she believed. Now, when I tell this story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the house with the birds in the walls and all the villages my grandfather owned and all the gold and my mom's own medical practice, all the amazing things that she had that we don't have anymore because she became Christian. All the money she gave up. So we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. 
She looks him in the eye with a begging hope that they'll hear her. And she says, because it's true. So Daniel develops this story in a way that is really similar, I think, to Oliver's argument from design in the little poem that we read. Except in his case, the proof of design is in the me- mechanism of their lives instead of the, the world at large, right? right. He, look, just like she, he says, look, I shouldn't have to explain. Just look. I mean, who leaves everything, their entire lives, for something that isn't actually true? So his argument from design takes into account the fact of his mother's conversion, right? So he looks at the fact of his mother's conversion from his perspective as a substantive proof of God's existence, that is, as God's identity papers. Absurdity (laughs) is proof. Yeah. I mean, why else would she do something? Because it's true, right? So faith, the miracle of faith, he says, is the mechanism that has to be explained. If it's there, then there must be a creator. Mm. It's very existence. The existence of faith implies God. Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's totally Because it's true. Why else would she believe it? It's true, and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Jalfa and maybe even your life. That or mom is insane. There's no middle. You can't say it's a quirky thing that she thinks sometimes because she went all the way with it. Mm. Wow. I got to read this book. You got to read this book. I'm not kidding. Book of the year. And right at the core of it is this question of God. Well, nice work. You've absolutely slaughtered it here on your first outing. You've given us not one, but two fantastic examples of the evidence of this question here in modern culture. They come down on the same side. I want to, I want to turn to Emily now for Emily's uh, modern cultural example of the evidence of this question and see how they jive with one another. As per usual, Emily comes in like a wrecking ball. (laughs) 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 Yes. We're going to go to fisticuffs. (laughs) So in 2017, there was this fabulous show on HBO called The Young Pope, and it had a ton of buzz. Um, And Ian and I watched it at that time. And, I still to this day can't believe that this show was made especially for HBO. And like, of course, I have to give the caveat that it was made for HBO and it has all of the content that HBO show has. But um, it is astonishing. However, uh, in contrast to the examples that mom has given, I have to say that this show kind of starts with the the premise that... um, what happens when we do open our eyes and look around for design, but what we see is evil um, and depravity and people, we see corruption in the church, the Catholic church, which is the most prominent and popular um, iteration. iteration of that to, to someone who doesn't know with all of the scandals that have come in, in recent times, what do we say to people who, who only see that? when they do see people who would answer yes to the question, is there a God? And they say, um, I, I can't listen to you because what I see is if there is a God, he's a complete jerk. Well, that's like Ivan, right? Ivan in, uh, in Dostoevsky, uh, the brothers Karamazov. That's what he says. Returning his if ticket. If there's a God and I, maybe there is, I respectfully return my ticket. Right. Right. Exactly. So uh, take us inside the show a little bit, Emily. What happens here? Well, anyway, so so onto the stage of the show comes the wonderful and magnificent Jude Law. I have such a crush <laughs> on him. <laughs> and that's the point, right? He is good looking. He's in his late 40s and he has just been elected the youngest, uh, the youngest yeah. pope at the beginning of the show. And the show opens with uh, him preparing for his address his first address to the public. And what we hear in the background while he's getting ready is the static of radio. And it becomes a metaphor a couple times in the show for just the silence of God. There's no radio connection in the Vatican is what he ends up saying. Um, God cannot be heard. And he gets in front of the crowd of people waiting to hear from him. And he starts spewing everything that is against 
the doctrine of the church officially. He says, everything is okay. Do whatever you want. God wants us to have a great time. Do whatever your appetite desires. But then we come to find out that this has been a dream, that this is not actually what he has to say to everyone. And what he really is, is the most morally rigorous pope in modern memory. It's as though he's going back to medieval times. He, he refuses to show his face to the people. He refuses to allow them to market his image. Um, when, he gives, he, when he does give his address, he's hidden in the shadows. And all of these corrupt cardinals around him are, are trying to manipulate him. They thought he, they elected him because they thought that he would be easily manipulable. He'd be a new face for the church. And, and instead he takes a hard stance. And so they try to give him a speech that's been written. Um, but instead, when he gets in front of the crowd and nobody can see him, he's hidden in the shadows, he opens up his little folder and inside is a kid's drawing that he picked up because people are sending him stuff because he's the new pope. And it's this little kid's drawing, and it says, what do I have to do to believe in God? And that's his speech notes. And basically what he ends up saying is, I don't care about your doubts, and um, I'm indifferent to your criticisms, and God requires you to only love him. So you, if you're going to be serious about this, you better get on it because stop loving other things. He requires your soul attention and he takes a really hard line and it scares everyone and people leave the Catholic church in droves. So Whoa. it's, um, is that just season one? Uh, well that was pretty much just the first episode. That's more or less episode one. <laughs> it was episode one. So anyway, there's this really interesting dynamic in the show, which is Lenny. Lenny is the Jude Law character, the Pope. He is an orphan who doesn't have, he, he can't remember his parents. He has dreams about them. He's constantly searching after them, but his parents are absent. And that kind of becomes a metaphor. It's either a metaphor for his relationship to God, God as absent, right. or it's the cause for it. And the whole show is struggling over whether or not Lenny is just really good at marketing himself. Um, it's a new marketing tactic. Or this, if this invisibility that he's the, the hiddenness, right? the, yeah. the hard line that he's taking, mm -hmm. if he's just doing this to, to garner his own popularity and image, or uh, if he is using his own experience as an orphan to shepherd his people into suffering. He, he at one point says that the only way to find God is through suffering and sacrifice. And so by hiding himself, he because he is kind of the image of God to these people, he is in a world that ex would like him to say that everything is okay, like he does in his dream, um, instead removes himself and requires them to suffer. Mm -hmm. uh, and by his absence and by uh, laying the law on them, they experience suffering, and his hope is that they will find God in this way. They'll find God in the process. Wow. The wow. other, the other tension that really deepens that from, from my own remembrance of the show is that he also has on multiple occasions, which is what leads to his election as Pope in the first place, performed miracles yep. that are incontrovertibly true. But he also so, says that he doesn't believe in God. Right. Uh, even he's the Pope. He doesn't believe in God, but at certain he's the, points he's having a crisis of faith as a newly elected Pope who has performed miracles. It's about the most human character I've ever heard of. Mm. Yeah, so there's this strange thing where if they are real, if they're not just coincidences, then the divine power is using him in spite of himself. Right. Wow. That's so, so Emily, to, to wrap all that up, would be uh, beautiful. I mean, I want to go watch it again tomorrow. It's, yeah, it makes me want to go see it too. No kidding. Yeah, it's really good. Um, but how does this? How, what is the answer that's actually presented? And if there's not a clear one, that's fine. But mm -hmm. in your in your reading of this, um, how does this answer the question on the table? Well. I don't, I, I'm going to try not to give too much away, but the general direction that the show ends up taking is there's a line that said uh, from, there's a saint that kind of comes to the forefront and uh, she becomes an object of study in the show. And the line that she takes is that um, all these questions that we have, are we good or are we bad? Are we going somewhere or are we stuck? 
that um, in the face of these questions, who is God? And her answer is, God does not speak to us. God doesn't whisper. He doesn't show himself. But God smiles. And mm. so uh, while the Pope is taking such a hard line, what's happening underneath the surface is in his own life and in the lives of the really wicked people around him are just moments, like small moments. Like the, there are crazy miracles that happen, but maybe the most important miracles are just like little moments of unselfishness or love or um, taking care of each other. Just these tiny moments that are against the grain of who these people are that uh, indicate that maybe it's more miraculous that evil people can act in this way and that maybe that's the best proof for God and that in spite of all of the suffering, the, the true stance of God is that he smiles. Mm -hmm. mm, that's beautiful. Wow. Is that presented as the, as the kind of the thrust of the, of the drama or is that it could be this, but it could also be this dark emptiness. Um, it, it's a pretty strong thrust, it although is, there's yeah. a lot of, it's a very complex show. But the director, Paolo Sortino, he basically said that this is a show about loneliness and man's experience of solitude, right? That the radio silence, the orphanhood. Um, and it's in those places where, like it or not, not the loneliness of not having someone to chat with, he says, just the, that, that conditional loneliness of human nature, that place is where we begin to ask questions about God. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's an absence as presence principle that there has well, to via negativa. Yeah. The, there, there has to be something that fills the silence. What is it? Oh man. So it's an eloquent presentation of the question for starters, but then also, also holds out a, a hopeful answer. Go ahead, mom. I was just going to say, I don't think that that, um, crosses anything that either of the two authors that we talked about first were saying because right? well if you think about it mary oliver doesn't deny the darkness of the night she only mm -hmm. says that the brightness of the dawn is all the more miraculous because of it mm -hmm. and nyeri yeah. as megan said she says she wants to call the book everything is sad right <laughs> because he doesn't he doesn't um, deny the darkness either in fact he doesn't wink at he, sorrow yeah as he tells you about his life it is oh, it is so sad there was so much darkness I mean, for example his father helps them escape but doesn't come with them and doesn't convert and within I think it was like three weeks he had divorced her and remarried and that was that right how does a child reconcile with that and that's just the beginning I mean the, just one thing after the next you know that this kid talks about so suffering then is really one of the focuses yes and his childlike voice yeah. just revealing the depth of suffering that he endured mm -hmm. growing up um, in these conditions and you know, so I think he's not denying suffering. Neither of these are giving us pat answers. They right. don't deny the darkness. Hmm. I think the thing that's interesting about the young Pope, though, is that it seems to be directed towards a culture that, um, an American culture, right, that it has it pretty good. It's pretty comfy and luxurious. And so um, the path of suffering that you're going to take looks a little different. Um, and I think what this show is suggesting is that uh, we have a culture that's open to the idea of a God. Uh, it's not that they're against it. It's just that the God they ha want to have exist is the God of their own making who In will allow image. them. They've, they've grasped onto the principle of brotherly love. And so that is their, if God is okay with that at all costs and um, we can do whatever we want in the name of love, whether or not it's truly love, yeah. um, then we're on board with him. And what the show seems to say is what this culture needs right now is the, the path of suffering. Um, uh, uh, they need the law doubled down on them. Um, it's the small door. He, at one point, Lenny shows his fellow cardinals at just a tiny, tiny little golden door. He says, this is the door that you must walk through to find God. It just, as a, as a artifact of a cultural moment, I thought it was, Kind of interesting. Wow. I, that, I'm, so now I have three things on my list to go and read. That poem, Once a Day, Every Day, 
And then the book about how everything is sad and the young Pope again. <laughs> Thank you. Sad is untrue. So excited. So, okay, so let's move to the second stage here, which is where we, we bring to bear some ideas from classic literature onto the same question and see whether we've been saying this the same way for all time or not. Um, I understand having read some of Emily's notes that her next example is somewhat connected to the first one. So I'm going to reverse <laughs> the order here in the second part. And, and, and mom, we'll hear your classic example to end the episode. Emily, what did you what you find in the classics? Well, don't you guys think that Lenny sounds like the whiskey priest from The Power and the Glory? Uh, yes, oh, yes, I do. Yeah, I was definitely. just thinking that. I, yes, I, I do. just the comparisons are so interesting. I mean, obviously the similarities in Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, it's set in a Mexico that has outlawed Christianity and is persecuting the Catholic Church, and so all that's left over is this one anonymous whiskey priest were not even given a name and he's called the whiskey priest because he is completely debauched um he drinks too much he has a wife and child a girlfriend and a child he's done everything that he's been told not to do and yet he can't help himself from traveling from town to town offering the eucharist to people in who in desperate need who aren't who and it's illegal illegal activity um, and he performs miracles just like Lenny. There are inexplicable events. And he himself would say, I doubt. I I don't think that I'm doing this for any real reason. I don't mm-hmm. believe in God. Mm-hmm. And in compelled. spite of that, yeah, he's compelled. And, and in spite of himself, there is this life of faith that continues. And it's like, it reminds me of, I think, in on a old podcast episode of bibliophiles we talked about nt Wright's um defense for christianity and saying that look it's just existed it, it continues to thrive in spite of the in spite of dire circumstances and it's kind of the same thing um hmm. the the life of faith and green's work in spite of everything that comes against it continues to live on the difference being, of course, that in his story, the Mexican government is the authoritarian figure and the whiskey priest right. is kind of the, the place of refuge, which is the other side of that coin, right? That's the gospel side of the law and gospel coin, which the the fact that the the two cultural moments require two different articulations of very similar ideas, I think is interesting. The cultural moments being being this decade with the... With the young Pope and mid twentieth century, Graham with Green. with Graham Greene, yeah, yeah, with Power and the mm-hmm. Glory, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Hmm. So, do you guys agree? Well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask Emily. So, is Green, is Green suggesting that do what you will, uh, believe what you will, be as irreverent and debauched as you will? you are one of his creatures and follow along in his train uh, despite yourself. Is that kind of Green's... Is he offering that idea up for consideration? Uh, If not that, something close, something like no matter... First of all, where we started the beginning of this show, uh, doubt is not a, a disqualification. And... No, your uh, your behavior does not preclude you from serving the faith, hmm. from being from being an instrument of God. Yeah, it sounds like in the cases that you've suggested that they kind of underscore that it's not the the character himself who is acting, but it's got to be God acting on him and through him. Right? Not good guys. On the whole, right. yeah. Would... Well, because if they were a morally upright character, then it could be the person himself who is the the one acting. Right. Which is uh, the young pope walks that line a little bit more because Lenny is actually morally upright. He is aware of his own flaws. He calls himself a coward at one point, but when it comes to the kind of behavior that the whiskey priest engages in, he's squeaky clean. And yeah. so with Lenny, there is that question, which I think is a very postmodern question, is am I my own God? Yeah. Am I the one that is, is making myself uh, well, making myself? There's a question of who's commanding God, who's commanding these miracles. I mean, there, there's a scene where where uh, where Lenny commands commands 
God to act. You must, he says over and over again, you must do this thing that I see that needs doing. You must do mm-hmm. it. And yes. it happens. So who's in charge here? A right. Little bit, but he does right? it on his knees. He right? does. Yeah. It's submissive, but intense in green. It's never, it's never, uh, in green, the presence of God is, is assumed and even, even argued for. And, uh, all kinds of light is thrown on the, on, on his existence through the shadows of all the experiences of mm-hmm. his characters. Mm-hmm. It's never the characters that are um, effective in forcing God's hand. They're always at his mercy. Right. And that not just in the power and the glory, but in green's other stuff too, there they hate him. Right. And they feel like pawns, but this in and of itself is an, is an argument as it were for his existence. I think mm-hmm. both of those That's remind beautiful. me of, um, I read a book called Godric this year by Frederick Beekner. I tried to read it several times before, and I finally read it this year. And um, it it talks about a priest um, very similar to the whiskey priest in that regard. Um, Not a good guy, and he becomes sainted, and um, everybody thinks he's wonderful. But you get to see inside um, his thoughts and his soul, and you get the interior monologue, right? And you see that this guy you kind of get his life story and his reflections from old age on who he is and how he's gotten where he is and who he still is, not just who he was, but who he still is. And who he remains as it were. Yeah. So it, it kind of considers the question of, of sainthood of what is a saint, but simultaneously I can see it um, showing up the same kinds of questions that you're talking about, Emily, with these other shows. Hmm. It's really interesting. So mom, what, what classic example did you find? Well, I, I thought about the Russians. Yeah, I was thinking about the Russians, as I mentioned earlier, because my first thought when Emily started talking is, oh, well, this reminds me of the Brothers Karamazov. Why it isn't actually possible to do whatever we want to do, right? Um, that right. If, if there's no God, then anything is possible, he says. And permitted, yeah. Anything is permitted, anything right. is possible. Um, but turns out when um, a murder happens and he's in some way complicit to it, he's horrified. And why is he horrified if, mm. if everything is is permitted? Then murder is permitted, right? And so he has to reckon with the reality of objective truth that stands in judgment of him and of his actions and the actions of other people that is in some way written into the fabric of the universe, implying that there's a writer, <laughs> right? That right. there's someone writing these these laws, these moral laws that constrains us in our soul from living in a way that would... Um, would assume that everything is permissible and act on that. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Anyway, I thought about Dostoevsky. I, I think Tolstoy talks about this idea too um, and gives us another kind of argument from design in War and Peace, which I know you guys have been reading. There we've been goes. trying so hard. Maybe she just took it. No one else can use it. War and Peace. We've, we've all been talking about how as <laughs> no we one can use these episodes, I'm doing we're going to have a hard time not using War and Peace every time. <laughs> Because he writes about darn near every universal idea there is. Yeah. Yeah. He's the only one, I think, that in one novel touched on every universal idea that you can imagine. It's kind of astonishing, but it is really long. (laughs) (laughs) It's extremely long. Well, okay. So he's, throughout the course of War and Peace, he's talking about history, which you guys have been talking about too in your podcast. Basically, he is looking at the mechanism that is history, noting how intricate it is in its design and considering all the possible things that could evoke it. The great military men that move history or great philosophers. Is it common men with their decisions? Is it some sort of fate? Um, He is looking at how the tapestry of events that become history are actually woven right? Who works the shuttle? Who mans the loom? And he imagines a providential figure that's guiding all of these teeny tiny movements of nameless men, just as he's guiding the movements of, say, the Napoleons of this world, all of the figureheads, each of them being compelled in some way, but simultaneously making their own choices and acting for their own reasons. So he sidesteps fatalism, right? Because everybody's doing what they want to do but still acknowledges that there's a designer. He sees a design and a designer. Leo Tolstoy is always trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's always trying to say, oh, it's he, this over here, but ah, also that. He, he does an amazing job of, of proving his point, I think. And 
his is an argument from design as well, with the machine being the complex web of motivations and causes that govern the progress of history, and God being the ultimate designer, the prime mover who causes all the subsequent causes in the great chain of operations, right? So I see that. What do you guys think about that? I think it's gorgeous, as per the usual. I wanted to say that not only, I agree with you, that this that, that Tolstoy is is arguing in his way, in his artistic literary way, for the existence of God. And more than that, that he's assuming the existence of God in order to talk about history, in order to talk about relationships, in order to talk about the sweep of human life. But I want to throw out one more idea, which is the existence of his art is another evidence for the existence of God. I I think that a a work like Tolstoy's can't have been written or even contemplated Mm -hmm. in a world where there is no God. That the the excellence of his work, the profundity of his work, the greatness of his novel, and you, this, you know the same goes for Dostoevsky, the same goes for the other ones you mentioned, is itself a kind of testimony to that supernatural reality of which they are symbols. Mm-hmm. So, so I think yes and yes and yes to what you were saying. Yeah, I totally. I I think that he does such an amazing job of looking. Of setting up both a, um, the microcosm and the macrocosm where the question is concerned, looking at the, the details of individual men and their lives and giving you a close-up of all of the events that occur and how things work together for good in, in the main characters' lives, and simultaneously of giving you this vast battle um, with all these moving parts, and you get to see how things work together for good on the larger front as well. And see that those two things are knit together, the macrocosm and the microcosm. How did he do that? I don't know. It's 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 a, a work of art. Well, it, so- it sounds like it sounds like um, the whiskey priest to me. Seems like there's some synergy mean? between those ideas. Well, Emily was describing how how there's a there's an overarching plan being executed as he's compelled to to uh, make his way across the countryside offering the Eucharist to all these people. And the result is little miracles in their lives. While personally, he lives a a life full of sin and debauchery and doubt. And so the the microcosm is maybe always full of suffering and darkness and, and sort of a fog through which we're all wandering around, wondering what the heck is going on down here in the world. Whereas the macrocosm uh, is, is a history of, Redemption, salvation, and and provision, um, and it sounds like they're they're saying the same thing, from two very different cultural perspectives and do and different moments. But it seems like the thrust is pretty similar. What do you guys think? Well, I could see that too because I think the question of war and peace, not to get too far into that because this is not that <laughs> podcast, is um, how do we from the microcosm, to use your term, from the the minute instance of suffering in our daily life, see some kind of divine order or or plan? That's the macrocosm, the overarching hand that kind of defines our days. And, and and it's it's very important that we that we find that macrocosm because that's where the hope lives. And so Tolstoy is trying to look back at history and say, I see that hand. Even as he says, and in the moment, we can't predict it. I don't know what causes things. And so here we are in our minute suffering, but we really hope that there's a hand. Yeah. And I think you're, I think you're right to put it that way because it occurs to me that the question itself is the question of whether there is a God is that attempt to get to the macrocosm from the microcosm. We look around in our suffering and say, either it's meaningful or it isn't. And that's in, in one breath is the same thing as saying, is there a God or isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what Ivan was saying in the Brothers K. When I mentioned him earlier, he's looking at the microcosm and he's looking at instances of it playing out in the newspaper and in his personal life. And he's saying, all is darkness. There's nothing but suffering. You tell me there's a God, right? But um, the people around him that have faith say that the suffering itself is evidence that there's a God. Yeah. <laughs> and then let me tell you who he is. He's a God of suffering <laughs> and well acquainted with ge- grief. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I, what a beautiful answer to the larger question. I, I see Dostoevsky bridging that gap, um, explaining how the two come together and localizing it in the darkness itself. Interesting. So um, that makes me want to go directly back to the young Pope again and ask if in the light of that statement right there, there's even more hope running around in that show than we thought. 
You know, on my second viewing, which I've kind of crammed in over the last couple of days, I really think so. I was quite shocked because when the first time you're watching the show, you're asking all the questions along with them. And right. there's I, he's a con man to all appearances. I mean, for goodness sakes, the best part of this whole show is um, he, he delays his first speech to the Cardinals for a very long time. And they are stuck in Rome. All of these Cardinals from all around the world are stuck in Rome. Can't for like go back to their estates 90 until days. he's addressed them. And they're waiting for him to address them. And he keeps putting them off and putting them off. Meanwhile, he has ordered <laughs> the uh, papal tiara that has been in a museum in Washington, D.C. to come to Rome. <laughs> and uh, I don't know that this has any thematic significance to the conversation. I'm going to tell you about it because it's awesome. I love it. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> so it finally arrives, and it turns out that's what he's been waiting for. And so there is this extended scene of Lenny, who is Jude Law, who is a beautiful man, getting dressed <laughs> with her. <laughs> Well, it's important, right? He's getting dressed in the most ostentatious garments. And in the background is playing, I'm sexy and I know it. (laughs) (laughs) So great. You're right, Emily. That doesn't have any thematic significance. (laughs) Okay, how does that answer the question of God? What were you saying? You were asking me about if it had more hope to it. Yes. It, yeah, it's it's silly. It's it's a silly show, and it's easy to get swept away in those moments and think of him as a con man. That's where we started. Well done. <laughs> but uh, he's so sincere. And out of one side of his mouth, he says, I illumine myself. And then we see him. He says that to, in public. And then we see him in his room in private on his knees saying, I'm so sorry. I do not illumine myself. You illumine me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I can't <laughs> with believe fear I said in that. His eyes. I, I can't believe I said that. I got away. Yeah. It's a great picture of, of the of the crux of the question. I really th- I really think it was well selected, and I love the way that Mom's examples um, lend color and depth to the whole the whole conversation. I, uh, well, and the thing that I love is that because we've looked at both the modern and the classic answers to these questions, or at least some of them, um, we can see that that it is really a universal question, right? I mean, one of the things you said is you thought that when we looked at this, we'd find some very different answers, like that the the modern answer is very different from the, the classic traditional answer. And I don't really hear a lot of difference at all. I mean, both are really fixated on the idea of suffering, right? Which, um, yeah, that's true. I think in the, it, everyone looks around, if they're honest, and says suffering is key to this question. The key to this question lies in suffering somehow. I think that's probably true. I do think, however, that you, both of you, are looking to to uh, find, you guys find compelling a similar answer. I can think of some examples off the top of my head that provide very different ones from the four things that you guys just mentioned. Well, I was um, even, I don't know about the the answer to the question, but I was think, thinking um, different answers to the question are compelling in different moments. I, I kind of already talked mm-hmm. about that, but I think mm-hmm. that culture today needs an answer they have ears to hear a different answer than in past times right um and i I think that it needs to be it always needs to be re-articulated in different ways for different moments Mm, that's a good point also Also, i think that you mentioned that in the young pope his answer was peculiar to his time he believed that the the narrow what about tiny little golden door yeah yeah, the narrow door um, was necessary for the culture because they were um, soft and wanted their their ease, you know. And so he gave them strict, harsh rules to follow. That 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 idea of the the uh, the narrow way, the narrow door, is so in keeping with um, the ideas of suffering that are present in these other works mm. that we well, that's talked what he's about. trying to engender right he's trying to show them that they yes god smiles but can we really experience that until we've passed through grief the grief of our own inability to pass through the door mm. well and i i hear ivan basically being confronted with the same issue and he wants he wants answers to his question he wants certitude which is a kind of ease right faith is something other than certitude we started out with that that they're 
they're opposites. Right. Those are the true opposites, not faith and doubt, but faith and certitude. And Ivan's looking for certainty that there's a God. He's mad that God won't um, explain himself. And so we come full circle to Mary Oliver. Um, why are you asking for his identity papers? Mm-hmm. They're, they're both, um, I think, fixated. His brother, Alyosha, says, you're rebellious. The problem with you is you're rebellious. Um, when you think about that, really what it means is that you want to be in charge. You want things your way. You want to be God. And um, anybody asking for God's identity papers believes that they are in some way over him, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So maybe there's the issue of rebellion underneath it all. Mm. I yeah. bet you're right. Yeah. Any other thoughts get sparked in any of you? One of the things I had in mind to ask was... Um, it's not just in literature and art that we find these universal questions. You can come across them in your daily life, in your, in your day-to-day, driving around the city or what have you. Did any of you, once the question was on the table, did it spark any remembrances from your own personal life that are worth sharing? Well, the discontinuity between the the discontinuity between sloth and moral laxity on the one hand and compulsion on the other hand into following God, you know, that, that whiskey priest like disjunction, I I'm sure we can all identify with that at some level. And I, if I find it encouraging to remember Graham Greene's, uh, you know, literary suggestion that that may be evidence, not only of his existence, but also of his faithfulness. Right, that in spite of uh, dissolution and laxity and not really caring from this side, uh, he is he is uh, a motive force anyway to to accomplish his work in each of us. I think that's that's a detail that we can probably all identify with. Oh, absolutely. I've um, I have scriptural examples on the brain because I've been studying the Old Testament at school and. Um, this, the, man, the David story is really hard to read. Yeah, if, if you're reading at any level of, of depth and pausing to consider anything, it's so hard because he's powerless to do it right. He just can't. There's no hope of it. He's he is going to. He's going to fail, and um, and he does. And punishment is forthcoming. It's not that he fails and then and then God has mercy on him. He fails, he is punished, and God has mercy on him. And that's the tension you're talking about. Both of those things are coming. Punishment, the just deserts of, of your sin and its, and its temporal consequences. There's no getting out of those, despite the presence of a merciful God. I don't know. It's, it's been sobering. And uh, I, I really identify with what Emily was saying about Lenny saying something in the heat of the moment and then going back to your room afterwards and going, I didn't mean that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. So I was listening to the world and everything in it this morning and they got to the end of the news cycle and there was an interview with a woman who was adopted. And when she was of age, she decided she wanted to meet her birth mother And she had an older sister who was also adopted, who had had the experience of meeting her birth mother and knew how that went. And it went great and it was wonderful. And so she was looking forward to that too. So she decided, she said, to buy her birth mother um, a gift. And it it was um, some sort of jewelry with her own birthstone in it. And she wrote her a note telling her, thank you for choosing life. She met this woman and the woman read the card and burst into tears and said, oh, but you don't understand. I didn't choose life. I tried to abort you, and I was very successful in aborting your twin, and didn't they didn't know that you were there, and she's confronted with the reality of the horror that she was tacitly a witness to, although not yet aware, and the woman was weeping openly and um, had been carrying around the shame and the guilt and the darkness that that represented in her life. Um, for years, for like 17 or 18 years. And um, the the reason that I think of it is because it's essentially the same kind of story as the one that Ivan tells about the, the little boy that a master is angry at, and so he strips him naked and sets his dogs on him, and the boy is devoured by dogs in his presence, and the man laughs. That kind of darkness and um, 
I, I just the vulgarity and the inhumanity of that kind of experience. I mean, thinking about infanticide that way and realizing that it actually goes down in our world. Tiny little babies are dismembered and their moms allow it and our laws allow it. That's pretty dark. And, and yet in the face of that darkness, you get um, recognition of sin, repentance, um, reconciliation, uh, forgiveness, love, um, that, that actually transcends it. And in, in some way, um, it doesn't justify the evil, but it wouldn't, we wouldn't know it without the evil in some way. That without the suffering, there would be no, um, I don't know how to say it. There'd be no contrast by which we would know goodness and truth and mercy and love and light. Yeah. Yeah. The, the dark before the dawn, right? Um, I was thinking, even as you said that, it, Oliver's um, argument is that the dawn is, is, is coming, but she doesn't deny the darkness. But I think it's even more specific than that. After listening to you read the poem, it's the intermingling of the two that is the testament to the work of God. It's the passing of the one into the other, not the presence of either of them without the other one. And, yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah, I, think I think that's you're right. that's the testimony of all the, yeah. the artists that we've talked about today, which is incredible to me. I mean, here we are um, looking at examples from all the way across the spectrum, and they're all at least agreed upon the centrality of this question, and on the centrality of suffering to its answer. And how I don't know how that's hopeful, but it is somehow. It's hopeful to me, anyway. But she doesn't deny the beauty of it. I mean, in the same breath that you talk, we can focus on the darkness that the light's breaking in on. She's, she's basically imaging a moment of beauty in nature. And like Emily said earlier on, that that beauty is somehow um, more astonishing than the darkness itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's well said. Well, the beauty of this conversation was truly astonishing to me. Thank you all. Thank you all so much. And thank you listeners for joining us uh, on what I hope is the first of many, many, many more episodes here on Bibliophiles. Uh, Please do join the conversation on social media and comment on the podcast. We love, love, love to hear from you. Until we meet again here on the air, happy reading, friends. Happy Happy reading. Happy reading. Well, folks, there you have it. Bibliophiles is back on the road. We hope you enjoyed this first episode in our 10-episode series on The Great Questions. Join us next time as we tackle our second universal question, what is God like? In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Join the Bibliophiles discussion group on Facebook or find Center for Lit on most social media outlets. You can also contact me personally by email at i.andrews at centerforlit.com. Until next week, my friends, happy reading.